All right, let's, we do not have time today. We have much to do and less time to do it in. Because, once again, this is one of those texts that there's no good cutting spot. And so the only real cut would be at verse 27. And I didn't want to make you guys come back next week for just four verses that probably wouldn't take the whole time. and Because then i got to figure out a way to make it take the whole time. And then you're all mad at me, so there's no point in that. So we are going to try to plow through all of this and make sense of it. Now, with that said... Recap time, because I know you guys obviously remember everything that I say all the time, so I shouldn't have to do this recap, but <laughs> see, I do the recap almost for as, much, as much for me as I do for you, because I have a hard time remembering everything that I say. So, God is judging sin, even in the midst of his people. In the midst of judgment, there is good news. God will judge sin. Repentance and faith is still the access to mercy. There's chapter one, quickly in a nutshell. Therefore, the comfort for God's people is in his kingdom, not in this world. Sound good? See, there you go. You just covered all of last week. Now what? Because the book didn't end. There's two more chapters after that. Well, now the detail expands. More warning. But that also should mean for God's people more joy. And if we do this right, we're hopefully going to get there. And after we get to the more joy part, I'm going to warn you, when we get to the end, you need to save a couple of brain cells, okay? The most complicated part of this entire section is the end. So we're going to try to get there in a decent amount of time. So make sure you haven't completely lost me and I haven't lost you and we haven't lost our minds by then so that we can make sense of it, all right? You have been warned. Hopefully you have not been weighed and measured yet. We'll get to that later. <laughs> oh, tough room today. Come on now. All right, let's dive in. Verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Blowing the trumpet in Israel, this would be either a mark of celebration or a warning of something really bad happening. As I read to you that Zephaniah passage earlier today, when you see that the day of the Lord is coming, are we celebrating or are we warning? We're warning this time. This is a warning of the work that God is doing. And this would be a correct response to everything we saw in chapter 1. This is why this matters. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Now, is that a good description of the day of the Lord? Yes. Yes, it is. You're talking about the day of judgment. You're talking about God dealing with how much of sin again? All of it. Daniel gives you a, a similar description. Daniel 12.1. Now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So this is your first little reminder. This is something we're going to come back to. In the midst of judgment, there is always what? There's always mercy and redemption. In the midst of mercy and redemption, though, there is always what? There's always justice and judgment. Two sides of the same coin. We always point this out when we get to the prophets. Don't ever, 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 ever. Let me see, where are we? It's almost March, so we're, get, we're getting close. So April is coming because Easter is in April this year. So you're going to start about two weeks from now. You're going to start getting your History Channel, Discovery Channel, um, Easter specials where they tell you all the lies that the secular world has come up with about God. So... 
They're gonna try to paint everything as a black and white and they'll tell you things like, well, this is the prophet of judgment. Every single prophet has a message of judgment and every single prophet has a message of redemption. In the midst of judgment, there is mercy. In the midst of mercy, there is judgment. If you don't believe me, read the book of Revelation and pay attention. It'll make sense to you. We're gonna get to some of that later on. Verse three, a fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. So as this army from God, bringing his judgment, goes out into the world, what's the picture that's being shown? The world that they're entering into looks like what? It's beautiful. It's glorious. like Eden. It it's provides and it preserves the people. When they have passed through this Eden, what is left of it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Which, if you are a Christian living in this world with an eye towards the kingdom of God, remember that as this world descends in darkness and sin, and as judgment comes upon it, and as destruction comes upon it, that there is actually something that is lost. That there are things that you like, things that you prefer, things that you enjoy that are actually lost. I mean, Picture of God coming down. Go back to the Exodus. Exodus 19. Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Pause for a second. When Israel saw God descend on the mountain. And there's the smoke and the thunder and the lightning and the shaking. And God said, nobody come up on the mountain. What did Israel say? We're good. We're good. (laughs) This is one of those great does of history. We didn't need this reminder. In the midst of that. Now, why is that the response? They're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. In the exact same presentation, the smoke and the fire and the lightning and the quaking and the thunder, God calls to Moses, and Moses went up. One group of the people is absolutely terrified and horrified beyond belief, and Moses' response is, well, when God calls him up. Okay. He's going to go up there. He's lost his mind. What is he doing? What should be the attitude of the people of God? Psalm 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. That description of God does not change in the midst of the smoke and the thunder and the lightning and the fire and the shaking and the quaking and the judgment. None of that changes how you understand God. Why? Because you have been redeemed. You have been purchased. You have been transformed. You are being sanctified and you will be glorified. Therefore, Christian, you do not fear. Yes, there will be things in this world that you will lose. Yes, there is an actual destruction coming. But that does not change who you are in Christ. And that does not change how you view God. And why it is so important that you view this world rightly now before that. Because if your life is planted in what that Eden looks like, if your hopes are planted in what that Eden of verse 2 looks like, then what happens when it is cut down? What do you look like? Have you, oh, I shouldn't talk about this one. Have you ever seen that, um, 
It's old now. Go have some fun Googling later. But there's this group that was protesting. It's like out in the Cascades in Washington or something. And they were protesting some logging thing. I, I don't care about your politics or opinions on any of this. We're just going to go with it. And they were all upset because they'd cut down this old growth forest. And this woman is literally, I mean, literally screaming out at the top of her lungs and crying and like unconsolable sobbing because they cut down a tree. Look, I think forests are pretty too but I, I, I like the, 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 the stuff we build out of wood and we need it, and we can plant more, honest, I promise. Why is she like that? The entirety of her mind, the entirety of her worldview is bound up in the meaning of this forest, is bound up in the understanding she has for the planet and what must be done. Which, by the way, fun little statistic, I know I, this is not somewhere that'll matter to anything, there's actually more trees now than there was like 150 years ago when we started cutting them down in mass. <laughs> Just, if anybody ever brings it, we're cutting down the forest. Yeah, and we plant like three trees for every one we cut down. So it'll be all right. We're going to be okay. It's... All right. <laughs> Go look it up. I mean, see, this woman, top of her lungs, screaming and crying and mourning because they cut down the tree. That's an association and connection to the world that is probably, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Pro oh, pun. There we go. See? see? <laughs> I didn't even mean that one, but I'm going to mark it. <laughs> Probably a little bit too far and bordering on the idolatrous. I think we can all agree on that. Now, I use that as a silly example because I know that's not your world, but be careful. Be warned. Do not be so bound up in the things of this world that when discipline or judgment come, you're like, now what? Well, well the now what hasn't changed. You worship and serve God. You take the things that you have not worried about the things that you don't have, and you figure out how now do I serve Christ in my life? And you move forward. Um, Matthew 25, this is what we're up against. Matthew 25, we're not going to read the whole thing. Go read all of Matthew 25. It'll do you very much good. The parable of the talents. You guys know the story, right? I ran, the reason I'm not reading all of this is I ran out of room on my page, so <laughs> that's literally the only reason. Um, you got somebody who's given... 10, somebody who's given 5, and somebody who's given 1, and somebody who's given 10 makes 10 more, and somebody who's given 5 makes 5 more, and somebody who's given 1 did what with it? Nothing. He hit it in the ground. Why? The one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talents in the ground. See, what you have is yours. That's the world's view of God. You ever heard the argument, I can't become a Christian because God doesn't want me to have any <laughs> fun. Big old meanie head up in heaven giving me rules and regulations and not letting me do any of the fun stuff that I want to do. This is why they think of things the way they think of things. This is why they view things the way they view things in Christian. This is why you must not be steered and guided by the world. And again, we talk about this all the time. It's a constant what? A constant pull. If you are not actively paying attention and you start drifting along, how are you going to start drifting? Anchor. Think through. Evaluate. Who am I? Why am I? What am I doing? Why am I living like this? And what does this mean in regards to an eternal kingdom? Not the next 20 minutes, but the next 20 millennia. Think about that in that manner. It matters. So, continue moving forward. Verse 4. Here's where we go to the rapid-fire portion of your program. 
Their appearance, so this is the army, you ready? Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise of the ch- as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arrayed, arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish, and all faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line. Nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenseless, I'm sorry, the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Now, time out. Remember from chapter one, what is Joel describing? What was, what was the army from chapter one? Locusts. That's a perfect description of how locusts invade a land, right? They, they arrange themselves like an army, march single file, left, 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 right, left. They eat in an orderly fashion. They invade, you know, perfectly calm. This is what locusts do. You, you, ever, you ever seen a pack of toddlers? That's more akin to what locusts do. You just, just turn them loose in the ball pit, and what does it look like? Someone's crying, someone's screaming, somebody else is hungry, you know. Someone else is climbing the wall that shouldn't be climbed because it can't be climbed. That's locusts. They just devour and destroy everything, including each other. So God has an army of locusts who, like, war horses are running, climbing walls, killing people, destroying everything. These are not critters I want any part of. Because this is, this is something beyond different. This is like the stuff of nightmares. Just try to picture a, some weird amalgamation of horse-like locust. So it's like a bug that'll eat everything, but it's this tall. <laughs> yeah, some of you just went, Ugh. kill it, kill it with... Yeah, exactly. Now, part of the reason why this imagery is used is because it is so terrifying. And it is also why it was not just used then, but it is also used, well, for what is Joel future, for what is, uh, for what is us is actually past and potentially future. This is confusing. So let me read Revelation 9, because that's where you see it again. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. Again, that is horrifying as a description. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. That's very specific. (laughs) They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon, which, by the way, just means destruction. So in other words, what's their goal? What do they do? Now, and what do they destroy? So if I turn loose supernatural locusts the size of horses wearing armor, what do you think they're capable of destroying? (laughs) Again, how has nobody made that movie yet? Wait, but they probably have. It's probably one of those bad sci-fi movies that's on at like 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. You you admit it, you have hate-watched at least one of those, where you flip through the channel and you see this bad sci-fi movie with weird CGI, and you're like, this movie is so bad I can't not watch it. And then you watch the end of it, and you're like, okay, I'm a terrible person now. And then you move on with your day. See, some of you are grinning because you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Now, Christian, terrified yet? Why not? Proverbs 31, 
Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. Why does the Proverbs 31 woman smile at the future? Because she has prepared. Why has she prepared? Because she has listened to God and trusted in him and knows that his provision is good. Psalm 23, we read this last week. Well, I, read that, I said this last week. I'll read it this week. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you who is God are with me. Once again, Christian, you are being redeemed in the midst of judgment. You do not fear judgment because it is not judgment for you. And always remember this. This is one of the lessons, one of those hard-learned lessons from life. Just because something bad has happened to you does not mean you have been judged by God. So, we, and look, we have a tendency to do this. Hey, twist your ankle. Oh, man, what did I do wrong to deserve this? And you start hobbling around, right? You might not have done anything. You might just be a doofus and stepped in the wrong place. It happened. <laughs> I love that the amen I get is because I called somebody a doofus. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes I love you guys. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. What's, there are days when it's like, what's the, what's the, I have that song stuck in my head. Like, These are my people. <laughs> I've told you, now, I am not everybody's cup of tea. And that's why I tell you there is something wrong with you because you listen to me. <laughs> So, terms and conditions may apply. Your mileage may vary. Do your own evaluations. Exactly. Exactly. Now, maybe you did something wrong. Maybe you didn't. Stop, think, evaluate your life. For that too, Christ has died. Repent, trust in Christ, and recognize that he's bringing you to a good end. Do not assume, oh, see, that happened to them because dot, 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 dot. And we do this all the time. I've given you the example before. I had a... Um, one of my seminary chapel services was by a, a pastor from Louisiana a few months after Hurricane Katrina went through. And he had heard this, because believe me, I heard this a thousand times. The reason why Katrina hit New Orleans was because New Orleans is New Orleans, and it's that bad, and it's judgment from God. And he had a simple question. If this was judgment from God, then why are all the casinos open and my church is still closed? Why are all the bars open and my people can't move back into their houses yet? This is a weird-looking judgment. <laughs> and his point is valid. So what do, you do? what do you do? You evaluate. Look, the entirety of the book of Job should make this point to you. Sometimes it's discipline. Sometimes it's learning. Sometimes life is just bad because sin is real and sin corrupts everything, and you have to deal with the consequences. Recognize that in the midst of those consequences of sin, in the midst of that discipline from the Lord, in the midst of God judging sin and unbelief, you are being redeemed you are being rescued. Does that mean life is awesome and perfect all the time? No! That's why, again, Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, James 1, I'll give you the same message. Bear up under, under trials. Bear up under struggles. Be firmly planted so that you are not blown about by the things and the doctrines of this world, but that you are anchored in Christ, knowing who he is, what he has done, and what that means for your life. This should, therefore, not be terrifying to you. So we continue. Before them, so this is the army of locusts, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Locusts do that? Who does that? That's what God does. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? I love that good question. Because if you have been listening to me for any length of time, you know 
well, some of you will, exactly what verse I immediately thought of. I connect that to the other place where you see judgment replete in your Bible. Revelation chapter 6. God's judgment is being poured out as, I can never remember which one's which, but the seals are broken and the bowls are poured out and the trumpets are blown and they're snuffing out candles somewhere and everyone dies, okay? When you get to the end, everyone dies. That's basically like Revelation 6 through 19. Everybody dies. (laughs) Multiple times. And I'm not kidding about that. So they're all crying out. Why? Because judgment is being poured out. And they say, what? Fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Because if God is mad at you, who would be able to stand? Yeah. There's a reason why it then goes into Revelation chapter 7. Who knows what's the beginning of Revelation chapter 7? All those people where? Gathered around the throne, worshiping God. After these, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And what are they doing? They're singing praises to their God who has redeemed and rescued them. So who can stand? Those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and have been made white. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Go back to chapter 1. Cry out to God, and he will have mercy. In the midst of judgment, there is still redemption. The answer to this should be, no one, as long as they are trusting in this world, in themselves, or in anything they have accomplished, but to all those who have placed their faith in God, and all those who have put their trust in his accomplishment, in his forgiveness and redemption, then they will endure gladly, because they will not be terrified by the army of the Lord, because the army of the Lord isn't coming for them. As a matter of fact, the army of the Lord comes along and they say what? Hey, look, it's our side. (laughs) Yay, go team. That's our people. Yay. That's where this is supposed to lead. So, as my pages stick together, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord. So as bad as that looks, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Mm. Anybody remember from last week the importance of that last part? Even a grain offering and a drink offering from the Lord your God? See, chapter 1, the famine. Judgment from God. What's been lost? Everything. We lost the crops. We lost the fields. We lost the trees. We lost the vines. There's no more grain offering. There's no more drink offering. Now, we told you last week, if you don't remember, those are offerings of the presence of God. They're not sin offerings. They are there because the presence of the Lord is pleasant is present. They are there for him because he is there. If those offerings are withheld, then God's not there anymore. Or if those offerings aren't being offered, it's because God isn't there to receive them anymore. The presence has left the temple. What are we hoping for here? In the midst of that judgment, return to God. Don't rend your garments because read your, read your Old Testament. Read your New Testament. Jesus says something. What's the high priest do? He tears his cloak. Why? Because it's a symbol of mourning. Is it really actual mourning most of the time? No, it's a show. Which, by the way, fun little note on your New Testament. You ever wonder why like, Jesus, Jesus is called to the house of the girl who has died, and he walks in and says, well, she's just sleeping. And everybody who's there mourning and sobbing starts laughing. Like, have you ever gone from uncontrollable sobbing to laughing at someone like that? 
Now, I've been in rooms where someone has died and where we've told a joke at a funeral and everybody kind of has that little chuckle laugh. It's never, no, that's a good one. I like that joke. That's why I like actually a joke at a funeral because it's actually fun to see that hit because people are in a terrible mood and they feel awful and then they hear something that's a little bit funny or they're reminded of a funny story of the person who's died and they kind of stop. Then you can see they actually picture it and then you can see the smile and then they laugh. Why? Because they're actually going from one human emotion to a different human emotion. They actually had in Israel in the first century professional mourners. You could pay people to show up and mourn at your house if someone dies. Because the more people that showed up at your house to mourn, the better you were thought of in the community. It was a sign of prestige. Like, if no one shows up, it's because nobody cares because you're a bad person. But if, like, a bunch of people show up, you must have been really important. And you must have been a really, really good person. So families that had any money would set aside money that if somebody died, they would pay people to show up and mourn. That's why when Jesus comes in, they're like, oh, I can't believe it. Oh, she's just sleeping. What are you, stupid? <laughs> it's because they're not going from one human emotion to another human emotion. They're going from one acting scene to another acting scene. Hang on. The voice does not want to cooperate today. When you see the performative action, you are seeing the outside that can never change the inside. What's the constant reminder from the prophets? That you are supposed to be a redeemed people. That's why don't circumcise your body. Circumcise your heart. Change who you are from the inside out. This is Jesus' warning about the Pharisees and the woes of Matthew 23. What are they? They're ridiculous. Why? Because you take the bowl and you wash what? The outside. Now, look, it's pretty. So when you show up at the dinner party, what's the outside of the bowl look like? Because if I'm sitting across from you at the dinner party, what can I see? I don't see what's in your bowl. I see what's outside your bowl. But look how nice it is. Meanwhile, the inside's decrepit and falling apart and awful. Well, what's more important for the food? (laughs) What's more important for my health, that the inside or outside of that bowl be clean? Kids, wash both sides of your bowl. Just because I remember this was a survey a few years ago, there was like 20% of millennials don't wash the outsides of their bowls. (laughs) They just wash the inside and then put them back in the cabinet. Don't do that, kids. Wash both sides because you touch them and there's germs and germs move. Okay, just (laughs) life lessons. (laughs) It's like when you shower, you actually are supposed to put the soap on your feet. Don't just trust that that the soap washes down. Okay, there you go. (laughs) <laughs> you laugh. We teach these to children because if you don't teach it to children, you don't. You, 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 sometimes you got to wonder about folks. Same examples given in the tombs. What are they? Beautiful whitewashed tombs. They're nice and pretty on the outside, and everybody loves to look at them. Well, what's in the middle of the tomb? Dead, decaying bodies. Yes, in cobwebs, because <laughs> no one's cleaned exactly. This is the reminder of what the gospel actually changes. This is the reminder of how you're supposed to be. We're supposed to care about the right things for the right reasons. Now, if that is the case, and if you are reminded, what does that mean for the world that you live in? Let's keep moving. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. This should be both the hope of the people and the path moving forward. So, can you just rely on, hey, the day of the Lord has come through, they'll figure it out. Now, if there's ever a point when the world should figure it out, when do you think that might be? When the battle battle horse (laughs) locusts 
have swept across the plain. Just trying to picture this. Imagine looking out your window and, you know, a locust wearing armor with his tail like a scorpion the size of a horse comes jogging by and you're like, that's something you don't see every day. Huh. Okay. What's for lunch? (laughs) In the days of Noah, they were doing what? Right up until the rains came. They were going through business. They were married and being married. They were doing what? Just like it will be when the day of the Lord comes. The fact of the matter that judgment is literally in front of people is not enough to make sure that they will be shaken out. What is the prophet telling you to do? Go tell someone. Go round them up. Explain it to them. Now, even Israel, who has the law, who has the understandings of the prophets, who has the temple and the sacrifices, who even had a remnant, was that remnant enough to change their culture? No. Remember, the remnant was large. I mean, 1 Kings 19, when Elijah's all freaked out. It shall come about the one who escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. That remnant in Israel was small, and it kept the flame of who God was lit because God is never without a testimony. But was that remnant enough to change Israel? No, because Ahab was the king. Whereas David is the king that all the other kings are compared to to see if they're any good, like Ahab's the one they're compared to to see how evil they are. <laughs> you don't want to be compared to Ahab. For crying out loud, his wife's name is still an insult. Um, let me do math real quick. Almost 3,000 years later. You mentioned how wicked and evil you have to be that your name is still an insult three millennia later. Like no one has ever been called a Jezebel, and it was a compliment. Oh, you Jezebel, stop. <laughs> You all immediately know when I say a Jezebel woman, you're like, yeah, I don't want to be called that. That's not polite. It's been 3,000 years. You're being technical, just under 2,900 years. My goodness, how bad do you have to be that for the next 3,000 years, people will be like, that's not good. I mean, Mel Brooks made fun of this for crying out loud. You ever seen Robin Hood Men in Tights? From this day forward, all the toilets in the land shall be known as John's. (laughs) Now, Fun historical note, because John signed the Magna Carta in 1215, just think about how long ago that was, no, a, no family in the English royal line has named their children John because he gave away royal power and authority and they still haven't forgiven the man 800 years later. There is no grudge like royal grudge. <laughs> That's why when you see English royalty, there's John. It's not John the first because there is no John the second because everybody's like, nope, nope. <laughs> That's the one who surrendered all the power and authority and tax money we used to collect. Nope. Ahab was a little bit wicked. Israel was a lot wicked. If that remnant wants to accomplish something, what does that remnant need to be? Larger. Now, I point that out because you live in a world that you probably don't like a lot of. You see things on news, you see things on television, you see things that your kids and your grandkids and your nieces and your nephews all have to confront, and you go, I really wish people didn't have to deal with this, and I want it to get better. Always remember that the way it gets better is because people are better. Now, what's the only way people get better? Can we rend our garments enough? Can we make enough laws? Can we yell at them enough? No, what has to happen is hearts and minds have to be changed. The Holy Spirit must indwell. The gospel must be proclaimed. The anchor is where this passage begins. What's the point here? Lament. Weep and mourn because your sin has been exposed. Now repent and recognize what? 
that it is Christ's work that overcomes your sin, not yours. You can't weep enough. You can't mourn enough. It requires an intervention from God. Because I'm sure you have never seen a church service where somebody's been crying and, I can't believe this. And then 20 minutes later, you're like, weren't you just... I had a a friend of mine in church years ago, used to get in arguments with his wife on occasion. And his favorite line, because she'd always get upset about something, like she'd read something for work on a Sunday afternoon because she was a realtor, so she was forever keeping updates on things. And his favorite line when she'd start getting fired up about something was, you know your pew's still warm. You imagine the look she gave him every time he said that one. But it's a valid point. Why are we one person over here and another person over there? Now, what's the cure? Don't be like that. Now, how? How do I not be like that? By recognizing that it is this too for which Christ has died. And I have to then realize that I'm not evaluating this part of my life, and it's time for me to do what? Recognize that these are my... Here we go, right? Kill it, kill it with fire. As we do this, I am not promising you your world will be better. I am not promising you the world will change. What I am promising is you will be a faithful servant in the kingdom of God. You will be evaluating your life, rooting out sin from it, proclaiming his mercies and excellencies, excellencies, and testifying to the goodness of Christ in the world around you. Now, if you can handle that to the end of your days, as long as God gives you breath, you know what you'll be? Quite satisfied. Even if the world does not change, even if the world is not different, you will have been a faithful servant and you will be thankful and you will be gracious and you will be, you will be beloved in the kingdom because that is what you have worshipped and served rightly. This is a bit of hope for you because at the end of the day, who do you have to trust to take care of this world? God. And you look at the sin and you want it different and you recognize that either Christ will have died for that sin or the locusts are going to have to take care of some things. That continues on. Finish with verse 17. Don't take it off. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? So as you weep and mourn and lament your sin, what's the hope? God's reputation. Go back to the book we were on previously, Colossians 3. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks through him to God the Father. Don't redeem us because we've repented. Redeem your people because they are your people. Judge sin. Redeem your people. Build your kingdom. Do everything that you have promised to do because it is who you are and what you are doing. Now, let's keep moving. Verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Now, this is the obvious response for God in this world. So let's make sure we have our history together. You are picturing Israel. It's a nation. It's on the map. It's on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. You can see it right there. Israel is there. This army has invaded. It is there to judge sin. But God will not destroy his people because they compromise 
or they compose his kingdom. If I could speak English, it would be all set. They compose his kingdom. As his people have repented and judgment has been done and his people have been spared because they are not to be judged, this army will be dispersed by who? By God. And the people will be saved. Now, Christian, is that what you should be looking for in your world? Should we be sitting here going, Lord, protect us from China. Don't let the Canadians invade. Don't laugh. The Canadians might invade one day. John Candy might have been a prophet. <laughs> Actually, we invaded Canada in that movie, didn't we? <laughs> why, is, why are we laughing about this? Do you have a Christian land? No, we just covered all of that. There's a lot of things in your world that you don't like. You're not rooting for this land, no matter how wonderful it is. Where do you have your provision? In the kingdom. Where do you have your protection? In the kingdom. Where do you have your peace? I'm a good Baptist today. I have alliteration. <laughs> I'm proud of me. Did I have another one? Make sure. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Where do you have your prosperity? See, I did have another one. That's why I wrote them down. <laughs> if I don't write them down, I can't alliterate. I have to think about these things ahead of time. Where do you have all of these things? In the kingdom. You don't have them here and now. Why not? Because you live in the midst of a sinful people. You are Isaiah more often than not. Isaiah sees the vision of the throne of God and says what? I'm undone because I'm an unclean man and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. <laughs> amongst other body parts that we won't mention. Everything is unclean. You don't root for the nation to be redeemed. You root for the people of the kingdom to be redeemed. You root for the individuals because that is what is being comprised of. This, by the way, though, should still give you hope. Because this judgment will take care of what? Sin. If an army of locusts can sweep through Israel and God's people cannot be judged, do you think he can handle saving you in the midst of this world? Do you think he can handle saving somebody else in the midst of some other world 100 years from now or 5,000 miles from now, whichever direction you prefer to, prefer to go? Yes. Again, reorienting your understandings in your life for where is your hope, Christian? For what are you living for? Judgment is coming upon sin. You know this. That's why you're a Christian. Remember, it's the kindness of God, Romans 2, that leads you to repentance. Well, why did you recognize the kindness of God? Because you looked at your sin and said what? I'm in trouble. Because <laughs> if I keep doing this, God's eventually going to go, stop it. And if I just stop it enough and I don't stop it, you know where I end up? I end up in the not good place. And then you see the mercy of Christ. You see the taking of your punishment upon Christ, and you see the offer of his righteousness, and you enter into repentance and faith and trust in God, and now you have seen the kindness, you have tasted the kindness, what First Peter 2 talks about, the kindness of the Lord. So you do what? You reorient your life around scripture, around prayer, and around serving God each and every day. Now, don't stop that just because the world looked really good today. Don't stop that just because it was a good day. I joke all the time that there's, there's a phrase that you'll see, um, You'll see this around um, some addiction ministries, the constant reminder when people are having bad days that this too shall pass. You need to remind yourself of that on good days, <laughs> that this too shall pass. Because it's not the bad days that I worry about for you guys, because on the bad days, you are praying, you are crying out to God, you are hoping that he will change things. It's on your good days that you forget him. It's when things are going well that you're like, I don't need to read my Bible today. I've been doing really well. I don't need to pray today. Things have been going really awesome for me. No, no, no. You need to reorient your life constantly. That's how you avoid those valleys. That's how you avoid that, 
that understanding of looking around and going, you know, it's awful dark in the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> How, when did that happen? Has it always been this dark? No, it got that dark because you didn't notice you were in the valley because you were reading and you were paying attention, recognize that God is with you, and then you stopped doing that. And then you looked up and went, when did it get so dark? It didn't. You just stopped paying attention. This is why I tell you each and every day, Pay attention. Think through. Who are you? Why are you? What are you doing? And how are those things related? Continue on. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. The trees have borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain, as before. Now, a couple of things. If famine breaks out and all the crops fail, and it's so bad that the trees and the vines are undone and all the cattle died, how quickly does that come back? That would be economic devastation for how long? Years. It's not like, oh, look, all the apple trees died. Well, now we'll plant some more, I guess. Well, it takes years for them to grow and then a couple more years for them to actually produce anything. And yet here we are. What are we, what are we immediately in? We have provision. We have blessing. We're going to have, because we have the oil and we have the vine and we have the grain and we have the animals, the sacrifices have returned. The offerings of the, te of the temple have been brought back. The people can now rejoice. Why? Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. At the end of the day, this is not rejoice because, oh look, we got all our stuff back. It's rejoice because God has not abandoned us. His presence has returned. His righteousness has been poured out, and we are his people. That's why that verse in the middle, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Doesn't mean delight yourself in the Lord, and I get a new Cadillac. Yay, go me. No. Delight yourself in the Lord. Make everything in your life about God. And what do you know? I rejoice in the provision that God has given. I rejoice in the righteousness that God has given. I rejoice in the salvation that he's given. We've talked about this before. If I have a car that I hate... You all had that car like in high school or college or when you were completely broke. And you're like, it's a piece of junk and I hate it. Why? Because it breaks down and it burns oil and the smoke comes out the back and you're not happy. But you go to work that day and you got a little money in your pocket. How do you feel about that car? I love that car because it did what? It got me to work. It got me home. And I was safe. Did the car change? Did it burn less oil today than it did yesterday when it was a piece of junk? No, what changed? I changed how I saw it changed. This is, the, this is the understanding of your world, your home, your job, your income, your family. These are provisions of God for the building up of his kingdom, for the strengthening of your faith and the building up of your righteousness and sanctification. View them as such and be delighted because God has blessed you because you are seeing this in light of his faithfulness and his fruitfulness, not any other way. We'll continue. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. 
Now, Christian, when will you experience that? This is where your perspective is so, so very important and why I make sure you understand that you don't have a Christian land that you're building. You have an eternal kingdom to which you are persevering. Your hope for this is in eternity. And this is why people are the way that they are. So Matthew 19. Looking at them, this is Jesus looking at the crowd. Jesus said, with people, I'm sorry, this is, not the, this is not the crowd. I got the wrong passage, sorry. This is Jesus to his apostles after trying to figure out about salvation. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It's a reminder that you can't build that. You can't. You can never build a nation secure enough. You can never build a wall high enough. You can never build a people good enough. Do you know why? This is always my lesson. If I ever found a perfect church, you know what I would not do? I would not join it. You know why? Because I'm going to mess it up. Because if they're perfect in every way, and I walk in the door. See, some of you are giving me that face. You know, I'm not real happy about how quickly you agree with this. <laughs> hmm. I see. <laughs> why not? Because I'm not perfect. And at the other end of the day, I know they're all liars, because so <laughs> there's no way they're perfect either. There's something somewhere. At the end of the day, the problem with all of our human systems is they're full of humans. We're involved. And the minute we get involved, sin will be involved. And the minute sin's involved, the degradation and the destruction begins. It'll start corrupting and tearing down piece by piece, which is, again, why we are always doing what? Always thinking and evaluating. This is the way we've always done it. I don't care. Just because we did it like that for 100 years doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean it's bad either. But nothing is exempt from evaluation in the kingdom. Nothing. We look at everything to make sure it has not become an idol and it has not become a stumbling block. And if it is, how quickly should we be willing to remove it? Yeah, immediately. There are no sacred cows in Christianity. We kill all of them. <laughs> because they're yummy. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I know we have a couple of vegetarians in here and you just, it's okay. Still love you. <laughs> All right. Save me a couple of brain cells. This was the complicated part, but I promise you, if you still have some brain cells, we're going to do this really easily and simply. You ready? It will come about after this. So after all this judgment has been poured out, all this day of the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Why? Because who's left of mankind? God's people. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, we know partially about this. This is the piece of Scripture. Of, this is why I, this, I, I love the brilliance of the New Testament. If you were going to preach the first sermon in Christian history, what text would you grab from the Old Testament? Because there's no New Testament yet. First, first sermon in Christian history. You'd be like, um, I don't know, did I go back to the garden? Ooh, Isaiah 53, that's a good one, right? Maybe one of the promises of Jeremiah. No, Peter gets up and picks that, per that portion. Those 28, 29, 30, 31, 32. 
Peter picks that, Acts 2. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, because they're all speaking in different languages. These men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And Peter reads that whole passage. So does that mean that everything that was just described should be understood in the crucifixion? See, I would say no, too, because that doesn't make any sense. Because while there were signs in the heavens, I don't remember the blood and the columns of smoke and the, and the whole... I don't remember all that part. Maybe I, maybe I missed that. It's, it's in, like, second hesitations or something like that. Now, this is where, <laughs> this is where prophecy is fun. And this is, this is hard for us because of how we think in the world. So I'm going to give you an example, and then I'm going to apply this to, to prophetic literature, okay? When you read your New Testament, you read the Gospels. I caution you, do not read them like a modern history book. When you pick up a modern history book, what do you want? You want it to start on one time, and you want it to go straight line until the next. So you want it to start at like 500 AD, and when the book is over, you want to be at 600 AD, and you don't want to be jumping back and forth. If this dude was born in 520 and died in 550, I don't want to then start with another dude who who was born in 515 and died in 525. I want to keep going in what direction? It's what we call linear thought. We start, we keep moving. Your gospels are history, but they are not written like modern history in linear fashion. They are written a lot of times thematically. Best example I always have of this is the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke, which Luke flat out tells you, I'm writing an organized orderly history so that you will know. Luke is a great historian, does an excellent job. He starts around the end of chapter 9 of his gospel with Jesus all the way at the far northern end of Israel. And then he arranges the material from 9 to 19 as Jesus is systematically marching south from outside of Israel to Jerusalem. And then ends with the triumphal entry. Now, does that mean he has a different order for some of the events than John? Yes. Why? Because Luke doesn't care about linear time. Luke's making a point. (laughs) He wants you to know about all of this in a way that you will know. So the way he structures it so that you will remember it is like a march. You move from the north to the south and you continue on. And he does this and he's covering information that's over the course of three years when you borrow the the chronology from John. So... I tell you that because when you read ancient literature, linear thought is not always a thing. That's an example from history. Prophecy is the same way. Do not always assume as prophecy is just strictly linear. Many times it is figurative. Remember our example, we have the the shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, where we're describing an event, but ultimately that's fulfillment of that event is found in Christ. So you have part of that. Now, again, I'm still not pointing you exactly to the crucifixion. I'm just trying to make sure that you understand that you want to see this in a manner that could be applied in multiple ways. And an example of that is Romans 10, because Paul quotes part of this in Romans 10. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. See, that, that makes perfect sense, right? That's, that's exactly where you would grab. That's the exact point you would make from this passage, right? That's not the point I would make either, but. My encouragement and my help here is see prophecy as typological rather than chronological. So do not look for specific times, but look for pictures and images that again eventually get you to the right place. Now, when you read your Bible, when you get to the end, where should you have gotten to? What's your stopping point? 
When you got to the end, what should you understand? Well, not everything. Specifically, one thing. Who should you understand? And specifically, God is revealed in Jesus. Give me the Sunday school answer. When you don't know what to say, just say Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. I haven't said this in a while. Simple reminder of your lesson. If you are ever in a church where they actually say Jesus, or someone gives you the God, run, okay? Run. Just, there you go. Now, you want to get to Christ because what we're dealing with in the day of the Lord is final judgment. Now, in the midst of that judgment, how much sin is taken care of? All of it. How many of God's people are redeemed? All of them. And they are redeemed because of Christ and who he is. Now, does that make the judgment any less terrible? No. No, it will be an awful day, and I truthfully don't necessarily root for seeing it, although there are some people I would root for being in it. <laughs> but that's one of the reasons I'm a bad person. Now, <laughs> some of you are laughing because you are agreeing with me. You're like, you saw a face in your head. You're like, yup. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now, you want to see this rightly, and you want to see this typologically, because at the end of the day, you do not know when the day of the Lord will be here and what it will look like, because I doubt there's actually going to be an army of horse-sized locusts wearing battle armor with tails like scorpions. Maybe there will? I'm kind of kind of rooting for that. Like, if you were going to ask me to pick what judgment would look like, I think that would qualify. Like, yeah, I want to see that. Like, that's going to be better than anything Hollywood's ever put out for a movie. Like, there's no CGI that's putting that together. So, so part of me is like, yeah, I could get behind this. And then part of me goes, well, there's a reason why you're describing it like this, because this is horrifying and terrifying, and you want people to be up at night when they, when they imagine this. And yes, so if you told me that's not what it's going to go down, I'll be a little disappointed, but I get it. At the end of the day, the more important part of this is God will handle all of sin and God will redeem all of his people. Now, the second part of this is, did you notice where God's people were as this judgment was going on? They were in the middle of it, right? Now, some of them will be killed quickly in this judgment, right? I mean, if the army of locusts with armor the size of horses is coming around, how quickly do you want to die in this judgment? <laughs> I'm going to the front. Why? Because I don't think I want to try to stick this out. Does that make them any less than as Christians? I want to give you two examples from the other section of judgment that this points to, and that's from Revelation. Two letters to two churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 2, the letter to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about, is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. You know what that means, right? You're going to die. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. That's Smyrna. Fast, by the way, you want to talk about nice little symmetry? That's Revelation 2, 10, and 11. This is Revelation 3, 10, and 11, and this is to the church at Philadelphia. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, I don't know about you, but if I got to pick, I don't want to be a Philadelphian Christian and not a Smyrna Christian. I would much prefer the, ooh, keep me from testing phase as opposed to they're going to throw you into, into prison and some of you are going to die. Be faithful unto death and you'll, and you'll make it. Hmm. Does that make the Philadelphians better than the Smyrnans? No. Does it make the Smyrnans worse than the Philadelphians? No. Here's the real fun one. Is that fair? Yes. Yes, it is. 
No, life is very fair at the end of the day because God brings every act of life to judgment. Because we live in a kingdom in a world ruled by God, we trust what we get from his hand and we know that our end is good and our end is not found here. This is your big punchline. The end is not found here. It is to be looked at beyond. It is a kingdom that is to come. Judgment will be done. Yay! I'm not included in that. Why? Because Christ has borne my penalty and I don't face judgment. Does that mean my life is going to be awesome? No. But it means that at the end of the day, God's kingdom is good and the perseverance that I have towards his kingdom will be rewarded because it is the work that he has accomplished in me. Do I have my preferences? Yes. But I always give you my favorite example, which is Peter. Remember, Peter, I will be faithful. I will never deny you, even if it means my life. You know, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. That's never a good place to be. But I have prayed for you. Because if you're Peter, you know what that means. Satan, hey, can I sift that guy? And the answer was, yes. No, I want the answer to be no. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the discipline is yes. Sometimes the troubles come. And by perseverance, we prove the work of God and the accomplishment that he has made. This is the hope that you carry into the world. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be wonderful. God will deal with that. You, in the midst of that, serve and worship him. Testify to his goodness and mercy. Evaluate your life. Cast out the idols. Work on your sanctification with the cooperation of the Holy Spirit. And know that as you do that, there will be things in this world that are lost. There will be things in this world that are a sacrifice. But at the end of all of this is the crown of life promised by God, delivered in his kingdom for eternity. Let's pray.